I'll give you guys a heads up. I want to finish the service with, at the end of my message with that song, okay? Yeah. <laughs> what a powerful song. The movie was entitled Fatal Attractions. A story about a happily married man who is tempted, seduced, and drawn into an affair with another woman. After his initial tryst, having come to his senses, he attempts to break off the relationship. Unfortunately, the woman, now spurned, refuses to go away. She becomes jealous and possessive and obsessive and begins to stalk he and his family. Ultimately, this illicit relationship ends with a fatality and a loss of life. Hence the title, Fatal Attractions. This Hollywood movie depicts the dangers of adultery or illicit sex in a twisted and abnormal way. It seems as if this is the only way in our culture that the makers of of movies can portray the dangers of adultery. In the 1960s, America experienced a convulsive transformation of moral values. This sea change became known as the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution was a period of time when the practices and the lifestyles of the heroes and the movie stars of Hollywood were glamorized, standardized, and accepted as the norm. The old restraints were thrown away. Virginity in the past was considered a virtue and became an embarrassment. Television and movies increasingly portrayed sex outside the marriage as the norm. Movie stars jumped in and out of bed as many times as they changed their shoes. And slowly but surely, we swallowed the bait, hook, line, and sinker. The messages were very subtle at first. They were very gradual a values modification by increments, inch by inch, a dangerous incrementalism that began slowly gaining speed as we proceeded down the slippery slope of destruction. As we now look back over the last 60 years, we realize where this sexual revolution has brought us. Degradation of our sexuality, Reduction of relationship to a physical act. Transformation of true love to selfish pleasure. A violation of the most tender and sensitive of all relations between human souls. Fatal attractions are dangerous, far more than the physical being. How dangerous are these illicit attractions? How dangerous are they? Proverbs 3, 5 through 3, 5, 3 to 5 says, For the lips of an adulteress drip with honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. Proverbs six twenty five says, Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. And the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. 
With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. That was written primarily to men about women. Today, it can include every gender, every attraction on earth. Fatal attractions, descriptions of adultery. The first messages of this series, we looked at how God, in his love for people, established parameters, he established boundaries. And first of all, it's how we are to relate to God. We've looked at what are the parameters and boundaries in order to relate to God in the most optimal way out of love for God and his love for us. And then it's the horizontal, how to relate to people horizontally. And we've learned that when we live within those guidelines, relationships work. It's how God designed it, and he intended them to work. The creator gets to make the rules. The creator understands what best works and how human relationships that he created, as well as spiritual relationships, work. That's why the Ten Commandments were given, along with a lot of other guidelines in the Word of God. Let's look at the Seventh Commandment. It's very short. It's in Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verse 14 says, you shall not commit adultery. Very simple. You shall not commit adultery. Let's look at the primary prohibition because this applies to a lot of different things. Primary prohibition is adultery. This commandment was written to prohibit sexual relations with another person's spouse, a husband or a wife. Joy Davidman Joy Davidman writes this, quote, adultery occurs in many forms. There's the casual love affair indulged in because a momentary temptation is too strong or because everybody does it and I don't think it matters. There is the intense, passionate, long, drawn-out triangle or even quadrilateral adorned with conflict and heartbreak. And there is the legalized form with its rapid and lighthearted changing of partners in the courts. All these in practice come down to the same thing, a corruption of the heart, a destruction of the home, an end to love. For the sexual union is a total commitment, as mystics used to say in some ways, it prefigures the union with God, demanding a self-surrender, only less complete than the surrender to him. And where it is less than total, it is hardly worth having a momentary pleasure, a permanent loneliness, end quote. Let's look at the extension of the prohibition of the seventh commandment. The Old Testament law extends this prohibition to include all of sexual immorality. You can look at it in Exodus 18 later if you want to. This includes, number one, fornication, which is sex outside of marriage, premarital sex. That includes this. Number two, homosexuality, sex with a person of the same gender. It includes incest, which is sex with a member of one's family, and most repulsive of all, bestiality, which is sex with an animal. This 
includes all of those prohibitions. Leviticus 18 and other New Te Old Testament passages include all of these as illicit forms of sexual expression. Sexual Im immorality is regarded as very, very serious. The Old Testament law dictated that punishment for any of these was singularly death. Death. How serious was it? In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We, we are indwelt by God himself. When we receive Jesus Christ and invite him into our life, the Holy Spirit actually resides in us. Sexual sin is so repulsive because God is dwelling inside of us. Let us see. Let's look at it in the realm of the heart. Realm of the heart. Matthew 5, 27 to 28 says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This applies to a man looking lustfully with desire at a woman. also applies to a woman looking lustfully with desire at a man. What does adultery include? What does it include? It always begins in the heart, on the inside. Always starts, how does that happen? Well, first of all, we have our eyes, our eyes. Jesus says it begins with the eyes, the look. Anyone who looks lustfully. Now, the first look is temptation. The second look is lust, okay? First look is temptation. Second look is lust, sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. It only becomes sin when it goes to the next level, the next level. So it starts with the eyes. Then it's our thoughts. We see it, now we think about it, we nurture the thought or thoughts. The visual temptation has now been brought inside to our thoughts. It's internalized. We saw it, we internalized it. It's sin. Then it's our affections. Our affections, number three. Here's what it becomes desire. Now we want. We want. Then finally, the last stage is action. Our actions. Our actions. A.T. Robertson says... Jesus locates adultery in the eye and the heart before the outward act. Outward act. But the outward act is so destructive because it demonstrates a deep inner sickness already there. It's adultery or sexual immorality long before the act. But the actions are a culmination of the corruption of our heart. This selfishness or self-love at its height, no true love, there's no true love, and no true commitment. Tasker, the writer, writes this. What Jesus is saying is that God's demands in these matters are far more comprehensive and exacting than the current interpret interpretations of them by the scribes might seem to suggest. It says that adultery is but the final expression of lustful thoughts harbored in the imagination fed by the illicit contemplation of the object of desire. Now Jesus 
Jesus was talking to religious people. They were churchgoers. They were church people. These were religious people. And some of them would never, ever consider committing acts of sexual immorality. But they thought about it. They lost it all the time. And in God's eyes, that too is sin. Now we're going to talk about how to guard against sexual sin in a moment. But first, I want to take a look at the consequences, the consequences of adultery. Why is this attraction so fatal, a fatal attraction? Let's look at the consequences of adultery, Roman numeral two. First of all, in our personal life, the Bible says it's sin against our body, sin against our body. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20, it says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. He who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Our bodies are a temple, a dwelling place of the living God. Dwelling place of God. Now, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul calls the people, you all, it's a plural, y'all, and he says, y'all are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he gives a strong warning. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you, you all, are that temple. There it's a plural you, and he's talking about the church. He's warning, he's warning the Corinthian Christians about having any destructive behavior, anything that would disrupt, disrupt, or destroy the body of Christ, the church. That's a plural you all. It says the Holy Spirit dwells in you all, in the church. He's among you. Now, those are strong words against that. Now, here, your body is singular, meaning our body as individuals are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Very important to make the distinction. He's, the, the church in general is the dwelling place of God, the temple, and we as individuals are also the temple, dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. God himself dwells and resides in, in us, and the sexual union unites us as one with the other person. And God, the Holy Spirit, is involved because he's inside of us. Outside of the marriage covenant or the marriage relationship, we sin gravely against God in our own body. Strong words. The second consequence is enslavement. Enslavement. When someone is drawn into pornography or illicit sex, it can easily become an addiction. Addiction to pornography is as hard or harder to break than addictions to cocaine or heroin. It's an epidemic and it's so accessible. This can be adultery of the heart or mind. It's not the freedom that's advertised, it's slavery. I can tell many stories of people who sat in my office seeking help to find freedom from the enslavement of pornography. In a city near Seattle, there was a 13-year-old boy who was arrested for repeatedly breaking into neighborhood homes. Why? He was trying to get to their computer to access internet pornography. Talk about an addiction. Sexual sin enslaves us, whether it's online pornography 
or an illicit affair. People want freedom and they find instead, they find enslavement, an obsession with the thrill of illicit sex. Then we have number three, degradation. This sin is degrading of a beautiful gift God gave us to express. Make no mistake, God invented sex and God made it good. I talked about this several weeks ago. God made it good. He made it good to be enjoyed. But it's supposed to be in the context. He lays out the context in which we're to enjoy. Love for one person for life, union with that person, a man and a woman who then become one flesh. It's a picture of the union with God, becoming one with God. Any aberration degrades the purpose for which God intended it. And all throughout the Bible, it talks about the people of God who leave their first love. He calls it spiritual adultery. And it degrades who we were intended to be. God created, God created a beautiful relationship intended to be operated in the context of marriage. That kind of commitment, without that, it's sin. Let's look at, we've seen the personal life consequences. And then let's look at the family life, family life. Marriages break down and families fall apart for many reasons. But the most common cause of marital breakup today, and always has been, adultery. A lost trust, a lost affection. And the effects are not only felt by the husband and wife, but studies show today the long-term effects on the children of divorce that continue an entire lifetime, no matter what age they were. Now, I believe God can heal, but most or many children just cope and never totally recover from the divorce of their parents. Many of you here today can testify to the painful and devastating consequences of a marital breakup caused by adultery. Third consequences, the national life, our national life. What about our country? How has sexual sin affected America? Oh my goodness. It's amazing what's happened. The sexual revolution in America has brought us unwed mothers and teen pregnancies, fed the agenda of the abortionists for abortion on demand. It's brought us the violent abuse of women called rape. It's degraded women as objects of sex. It's brought conflict in the work workplace labeled sexual harassment as women become objects of abuse rather than persons of worth. And not just women, but men becoming objects of abuse. Come to light all throughout the music and entertainment industry, movies industry, abuse of young men as well as young women. It's brought us one of the greatest tragedies of all time, the sexual abuse of children, some as young as six months of age. It's brought us homosexuality that is so perverted, practices beyond belief, acts so repulsive we can't even talk about it. Sexual revolution brought us NAMBLA, North American Man-Boy Love Association, whose motto is sex before eight or it's too late. It's brought us the appointment of openly homosexual clergy, bishops in various denominations saying, we're going to just ignore it. We're going to marry men and marry women together. 
It's brought, that's the sexual revolution. It started a long time ago. The slide began in the 60s. Jokes about extramarital sex, normalization of extramarital sex, and then the mainstreaming of extramarital sex. Jokes about homosexuality, normalization of homosexuality, the mainstream of homosexuality. It's brought us the explosion of persons involved in the lesbian lifestyle, the transgender movement, choose your gender. There are now hundreds of genders, supposedly. That all started a long time ago. The sexual revolution brought about fatal attractions. And God said, do not commit adultery. Why? To, to spoil our fun? No, to save us from destruction. God's top ten, it's about relationship. We follow God's guidelines in our personal life, our family life, and national life is in order. It prospers. If we live outside those fence posts and guidelines, we leave ourselves open to attack from any and all directions. And sex is everywhere. We have a sex-crazed culture. Movies, advertisements, music, sex, sex sells everything. Clothing. C.S. Lewis wrote this many years ago. He said, we grow up surrounded by propaganda in favor of unchastity. There are people who want to keep our sex instinct inflamed in order to make money out of us. Because, of course, a person with an obsession is a person who has very little sales resistance. So how do we fight these temptations? How do we fight? I don't think I have to convince anybody we got a problem. How do we fight against this? Five guidelines. These are not exhaustive, but I, I think it's a place to start. How do we fight against sexual sin? First of all, letter A, know and admit our propensity to sin. Know and admit it's our propensity to sin. We have the weaknesses. James 1, 14 to 15 says, But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Fatal attractions. We have inside each of us the seeds of our own destruction, a tendency towards sin. Be aware of it. A big red flag is when somebody says to me, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. I've never done I'm never going to do it. No, okay. We need to say and propose and say, I will never do that, but don't ever think we're above any sin. We have a tendency. We need to be aware. Um, Genesis, Genesis has an interesting passage. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. It is part of the sequence. This is a temptation in the Garden of Eden. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. What sequence? That, this is the original sin. What sequence do we see? What can we learn? It started with questioning God. Did God really say? Did God, does the Bible really say that? Did God really say that about anything? First questioning God and saying, is this, is this really God? And then she saw it. Did God really say, then see it, desire it, and eat it? There's a sequence. Questioning God, seeing it, desiring it, eating it. First John 2.16 says, For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The lust of the eyes, see it. Lust of the flesh, desire it. The pride of life, do it. It's a pattern to be aware of because God can intervene in any stage. Any stage, God can stop that. We need to be aware. Aware of it. So no one admit our propensity. And then letter B, guard our eyes. Guard our eyes. Proverbs 4.25 says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Job 31.1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. It's a contract agreement not to look lustfully at a girl. Guard our eyes. How do we guard our eyes? Avoid places of pornography. Avoid places on the internet. Get filters. Some people need to get an internet partner who sees everything you look at and receives alerts. There are programs for that. We got an app for that. Okay, You have an app for that. If you have a problem with it, get an internet partner and say, you need to watch and see if I go on any of these sites. Avoid movies or any media that influences your passions negatively. When you're looking at a movie or reading a book or, or on a website, ask the question, just very simple question. Does this move me closer to God or further away from God? Does this move me closer to God or further away from God? It's, it's not rocket science. It's either, there are very few things that we see that are neutral. They either move you closer to God or away from God. And avoid the things that move you away from God. The father of some teenage children had a, had he, had a family rule. Every family has rules, okay? This particular family had rules that they could not attend PG-13 or R-rated movies. That was, that was his family rule. Now, his three teens, he had three teenagers who wanted to see a particular movie that was playing at the local theaters, and it was rated PG-13. Sounds safe, PG-13. So the, the teens wanted to see the movie, so they made a list of the pros and cons about the movie so they could convince her dad that they should be allowed to see this movie. The cons were it only contained three swear words. The only violence was a building exploding. You actually did not see the couple in the movie having sex. It was just implied off camera. Okay? The pros, those are the cons. The pros were it was a popular movie. The movie contained a good story and a plot. 
It had some great adventure and suspense. There were some fantastic special effects in this movie. And the movie stars were some of the most talented actors in Hollywood. It was probably going to be nominated for several awards. Many members of their church had seen it and said it really isn't too bad. So the father looked at the list in front of him and thought for a few minutes. And he asked if he could have a day to think about it before he made a decision. The next evening, the father called his three teenagers. They were, came into the family room, and there on the coffee table, he had a plate of brownies. And the father told his children, he had thought about their request and decided that if they would eat a brownie, then he would let them go to the movie. But just like the movie, the brownies had some pros and cons. The pros were, they were made of the finest chocolate and other good ingredients. They had the added special effect of yummy walnuts in them. The brownies were moist and fresh and had this great chocolate frosting on top. He had made these fantastic brownies using an award-winning recipe. And best of all, the brownies had been made lovingly by the hand of their own father. The brownies had only one con. The father had included a little bit of dog poop. But he had mixed the dough well, and they probably wouldn't be able to taste the dog poop. And he had baked it to 350 degrees, so any bacteria or germs from the dog poop had probably been destroyed. Therefore, he said, if any of you children can stand to eat the brownies, which included just a little bit of crap, and not be affected by it, then he knew that they would also be able to see the movie with just a little bit of smut and not be affected. They never went to the movie. <laughs> What's my point? Avoid places of visual sensuality. Guard your eyes. Anything that allows an entry point, where it's TV, soaps, MTV, music, video games, some of this is very subjective because not all of us are affected in the same way. You have to answer the question. We can't sit up here and say, here are the rules, you can't do this, can't do that, can't do this. No, you need to answer the question, does this move me closer to God or further away from God? Does this open my eyes to temptation or does it bring me closer to God? Guard your eyes. Next, guard your hearts. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your hearts for it's a wellspring of life. The eyes are the entry point to the heart. Guard your heart first. How? Love God first. Love God first. Spend time with God, God's people. Pray and read the word. There is nothing more powerful than taking time daily in prayer and the word. Just read the word. Prayer in the Word. Take time for prayer in the Word. Then you, then you spend time with God first. And some people like to have their devotions in prayer in the Word before they go to bed. That's fine. I find I need to start my day because it refocuses and reorients myself to God and His Word at the beginning of the day. Even if it's five minutes, ten minutes, whatever it is, take time to read the Word. Hear from God, His perspective. And secondly, if you're married, love your spouse. Love your spouse. It's amazing. 
The best way to avoid fatal attractions is to keep your marriage alive and strong. And a lot of studies have shown that those couples that spend time dating, spending time together, have a lot fewer temptations. They love their spouse. And then love others, number three. When we truly love others, we will not engage in selfish, manipulative, destructive behavior. There are young couples who date where one or the other is pressured to engage in sex. That's not love. That's exploitation. It's selfishness. If someone truly loves you, they will not try to get you to do something for their own selfish pleasure. Letter D, guard our actions. Guard our actions. Stay away from places of temptation. It's interesting, and this is to a lot of single adults today. There's an article written about, written about the deadly deception of sexual atheism in the church. Sexual atheism in the church. This, I'll quote part of this study. While Christian singles report that praying and church attendance are highly desirable qualities in the dating matrix, a troubling and confusing dichotomy arises when the issue of sex before marriage presents itself, specifically single Christians entering the sexual fog. In a recent study conducted by ChristianMingle.com, Christian singles between the ages of 18 to 59 were asked, would you have sex before marriage? The response, 63% of single Christian respondents indicated, yes, yes. He writes, in my 30 years of youth and adult ministry experience, this is as unfiltered, direct, and honest a question and answer can be. It is equally honest to say that nearly 9 out of 10 self-proclaimed single Christians are, in practice, sexual atheists. Sexual atheists. In other words, God has nothing to say to them on that subject of any consequence, or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct. It is the ultimate oxymoron. A person who at once believed in a wise, sovereign, loving God who created them in all things can also believe simultaneously he should not and cannot or will not inform their thinking or living sexually. Wow. He says, it reminds me of the famous red letters in Luke's gospel where Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? A disconnect between identity and activity. <coughs> Sexual atheists. How do we guard our actions? Avoid places of temptation. Avoid situations. And if you find yourself in a tempting situation, do what Joseph did. Run. Run. That's always a possibility is to run. Letter E, practice purity. Practice purity. Proverbs 4, 20 through 27 says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk free from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet. 
and be steadfast in your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now some here this morning may say, I guess it's too late for me. I've, I've sinned, I've failed. Well, that's why we have Roman numeral four, forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness and restoration. When God gave the Ten Commandments, he knew people were going to break them. He knew. He said, I'm going to give you these for your own health, health of relationships, relationship with me, relationship with human beings. He knew. So what else did he do? He made a plan of forgiveness and restoration for those that broke any one of the commandments, which is all of us. Okay? He said, I want to forgive you and restore you. God's top ten, the Ten Commandments, set standards. Then God takes action to redeem us for failing to live up to that standard. It's amazing. God gives it, and then he says, I know you may not keep it, but I'm going I'm to help you, and I'm going to forgive you. 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It reads this. Paul the Apostle is writing to good Christian people in the church at Corinth. He says this, verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. This, this awful list of all the horrible things these people had done. Then he says to them, and that is what some of you were. Ah, okay. That is what some of you were. But, there's this big statement, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All the sins that, that, that anybody can commit are almost all of them are right in there. All the breaking of the Ten Commandments. And he says, such were some of you. It's a plural you. It's all of us. Some were such of you. But now, he says, you are washed. You are sanctified, meaning you're becoming like Jesus, and justified. Justified means that we are sinlessly perfect in the eyes of God just as if I'd never sinned. So when he looks at you, when you ask him to forgive you and, and confess your sins, he looks at you as justified, as perfect. There's no problem with you and God. How does that happen? Through the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, this is, the Ten Commandments are not this bad news, good news, whatever. It's all redemptive. It's all how God wants us to live in a healthy environment, in a healthy relationships with God and with our fellow human beings. 
And, and we know, we know that when we follow the inventor's design, things work properly. No matter where you've been, no matter where you are today, guilty of fatal attractions or fighting fatal attractions, in Jesus there's hope. Forgiveness for our past, hope for our future. You do not have to live with the guilt of past. And you don't have to be jerked around in the present. Past, present, or future, God's power is there for anybody that has fatal attractions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you, by your grace,